Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we begin the final chapter of Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We will be finishing it next week, but it means we're almost done with this book. And this chapter is a cold shot, because during the conquest of Fred, there were some very half-baked ideas about how domestic work would be improved by technology, and this chapter may have some more considered ideas about that as an issue and how to address it. So let's get started with this chapter. Chapter 13. The Approaching Obsolescence of Housework. A Working Class Perspective. The countless chores collectively known as housework cooking, washing dishes, doing laundry, making beds, sweeping, shopping, etc., apparently consume some three to four thousand hours of the average housewife's year. Footnote 1. As startling as this statistic may be, it does not even account for the constant and unquantifiable attention mothers must give to their children. Just as a woman's maternal duties are always taken for granted, her never-ending toil as a housewife rarely occasions expressions of appreciation within her family. Housework, after all, is virtually invisible. Quote, No one notices it until it isn't done. We notice the unmade bed, not the scrubbed and polished floor. End quote. Footnote 2. Invisible, repetitive, exhausting, unproductive, uncreative. These are the adjectives which most perfectly capture the nature of housework. The new consciousness associated with the contemporary women's movement has encouraged increasing numbers of women to demand that their men provide some relief from this drudgery. Already, more men have begun to assist their partners around the house, some of them even devoting equal time to household chores. But how many of these men have liberated themselves from the assumption that housework is women's work? How many of them would not characterize their house cleaning activities as helping their women partners. If it were at all possible simultaneously to liquidate the idea that housework is women's work and to redistribute it equally to men and women alike, would this constitute a satisfactory solution? Freed from its exclusive affiliation with the female sex, would housework thereby cease to be oppressive? While most women would joyously hail the advent of the house husband, the desexualization of domestic labor would not really alter the oppressive nature of the work itself. In the final analysis, neither women nor men should waste precious hours of their lives on work that is neither stimulating, creative, nor productive. One of the most closely guarded secrets of advanced capitalist societies involves the possibility, the real possibility, of radically transforming the nature of housework. A substantial portion of the housewife's domestic tasks can actually be incorporated into the industrial economy. In other words, housework need no longer be considered necessarily and unalterably private in character. Teams of trained and well-paid workers moving from dwelling to dwelling, engineering technologically advanced cleaning machinery, could swiftly and efficiently accomplish what the present-day housewife does so arduously and primitively. Why the Shroud of Silence surrounding this potential of radically redefining the nature of domestic labor? Because the capitalist economy is structurally hostile to the industrialization of housework. 
Socialized housework implies large government subsidies in order to guarantee accessibility to the working class families whose need for such services is most obvious. Since little in the way of profits would result, industrialized housework, like all unprofitable enterprises, is anathema to the capitalist economy. Nonetheless, the rapid expansion of the female labor force means that more and more women are finding it increasingly difficult to excel as housewives according to the traditional standards. In other words, the industrialization of housework, along with the socialization of housework, is becoming an objective social need. Housework as individual women's private responsibility and as female labor performed under primitive technical conditions may finally be approaching historical obsolescence. Although housework as we know it today may eventually become a bygone relic of history, prevailing social attitudes continue to associate the eternal female condition with images of brooms and dustpans, mops and pails, aprons and stoves, pots and pans. And it is true that women's work, from one historical era to another, has been associated in general with the homestead. Yet female domestic labor has not always been what it is today. For like all social phenomena, housework is a fluid product of human history. As economic systems have arisen and faded away, the scope and quality of housework have undergone radical transformations. As Frederick Engels argued in his classic work on The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State, footnote 3, sexual inequality as we know it today did not exist before the advent of private property. During early eras of human history, the sexual division of labor within the system of economic production was complementary as opposed to hierarchical. In societies where men may have been responsible for hunting wild animals and women, in turn, for gathering wild vegetables and fruits, both sexes performed economic tasks that were equally essential to their community's survival, because the community, during those eras, was essentially an extended family. Women's central role in domestic affairs meant that they were accordingly valued and respected as productive members of the community. The centrality of women's domestic tasks in pre-capitalist structures was dramatized by a personal experience during a jeep trip I took in 1973 across the Maasai Plains. On an isolated dirt road in Tanzania, I noticed six Maasai women enigmatically balancing an enormous board on their heads. As my Tanzanian friends explained, these women were probably transporting a house roof to a new village which they were in the process of constructing. Among the Maasai, as I learned, women are responsible for all domestic activities, thus also for the construction of their nomadic people's frequently relocated houses. Housework, as far as Maasai women are concerned, entails not only cooking, cleaning, child rearing, sewing, etc., but house building as well. As important as their men's cattle raising duties may be, the women's housework is no less productive and no less essential than the economic contributions of Maasai men. Within the pre-capitalist nomadic economy of the Maasai, women's domestic labor is as essential to the economy as the cattle raising jobs performed by their men. As producers, they enjoy a correspondingly important social status. In advanced capitalist societies, on the other hand, the service-oriented domestic labor of housewives, who can seldom produce tangible evidence of their work, diminishes the social status of women in general. When all is said and done, the housewife, 
according to bourgeois ideology, is quite simply her husband's lifelong servant. The source of the bourgeois notion of woman as man's eternal servant is itself a revealing story. Within the relatively short history of the United States, the housewife, as a finished historical product, is just a little more than a century old. Housework, during the colonial era, was entirely different from the daily work routine of the housewife in the United States today. Quote, a woman's work began at sunup and continued by firelight as long as she could hold her eyes open. For two centuries, almost everything that the family used or ate was produced at home under her direction. She spun and dyed the yarn that she wove into cloth and cut and hand-stitched into garments. She grew much of the food her family ate, and preserved enough to last the winter months. She made butter, cheese, bread, candles, and soap, and knitted her family's stockings. End quote. Footnote 4. In the agrarian economy of pre-industrial North America, a woman performing her household chores was thus a spinner, weaver, and seamstress, as well as a baker, butter churner, candle maker, and soap maker, and etc., etc., etc. As a matter of fact, quote, The pressures of home production left very little time for the tasks that we would organize today as housework. By all accounts, pre-industrial revolution women were sloppy housekeepers by today's standards. Instead of the daily cleaning or the weekly cleaning, there was the spring cleaning. Meals were simple and repetitive, clothes were changed infrequently, and the household wash was allowed to accumulate, and the washing done once a month, or in some households once in three months. And of course, since each wash required the carding and heating of many buckets of water, higher standards of cleanliness were easily discouraged. End quote. Footnote 5. Colonial women were not house cleaners or housekeepers, but rather full-fledged and accomplished workers within the home-based economy. Not only did they manufacture most of the products required by their families, they were also the guardians of their families and their communities' health. Quote, it was the colonial woman's responsibility to gather and dry wild herbs used as medicines. She also served as doctor, nurse, and midwife within her own family and in the community. End quote. Footnote 6. Included in the United States Practical Receipt Book, a popular colonial recipe book, are recipes for foods as well as for household chemicals and medicines. To cure ringworm, for example, quote, obtain some blood rot, slice it in vinegar, and afterwards wash the place affected with the liquid. End quote. Footnote 7. The economic importance of women's domestic functions in colonial America was complemented by their visible roles in economic activity outside the home. It was entirely acceptable, for example, for a woman to become a tavern keeper. Quote, women also ran sawmills and gristmills, caned chairs and built furniture, operated slaughterhouses, printed cotton and other cloth, made lace, and owned and ran dry goods and clothing stores. They worked in tobacco shops, drug shops, where they sold concoctions they made themselves, and general stores that sold everything from pins to meat scales. Women ground eyeglasses, made netting and rope, cut and stitched leather goods, made cards for wool carding, and even were house painters. Often, they were the town undertakers. End quote. Footnote 8. The post-revolutionary surge of industrialization resulted in a proliferation of factories in the northeastern section of the new country. 
New England's textile mills were the factory system's successful pioneers. Since spinning and weaving were traditional female domestic occupations, women were the first workers recruited by the mill owners to operate the new power looms. Considering the subsequent exclusion of women from industrial production in general, it is one of the great ironies of this country's economic history that the first industrial workers were women. As industrialization advanced, shifting economic production from the home to the factory, the importance of women's domestic work suffered a systematic erosion. Women were the losers in a double sense. As their traditional jobs were usurped by the burgeoning factories, the entire economy moved away from the home, leaving many women largely bereft of significant economic roles. By the middle of the 19th century, the factory provided textiles, candles, and soap. Even butter, bread, and other food products began to be mass-produced. By the end of the century, hardly anyone made their own starch or boiled their laundry in a kettle. In the cities, women bought their bread and at least their underwear ready-made, sent their children out to school and probably some clothes out to be laundered, and were debating the merits of canned foods. The flow of industry had passed on and had left idle the loom in the attic and the soap kettle in the shed. End quote. Footnote 9. As industrial capitalism approached consolidation, the cleavage between the new economic sphere and the old home economy became ever more rigorous. The physical relocation of economic production caused by the spread of the factory system was undoubtedly a drastic transformation. But even more radical was the generalized revaluation of production necessitated by the new economic system. While home manufactured goods were valuable primarily because they fulfilled basic family needs, the importance of factory produced commodities resided overwhelmingly in their exchange value, in their ability to fulfill employers' demands for profit. This revaluation of economic production revealed, beyond the physical separation of home and factory, a fundamental structural separation between the domestic home economy and the profit-oriented economy of capitalism. Since housework does not generate profit, domestic labor was naturally defined as an inferior form of work as compared to capitalist wage labor. An important ideological byproduct of this radical economic transformation was the birth of the housewife. Women began to be ideologically redefined as the guardians of a devalued domestic life. As ideology, however, this redefinition of women's place was boldly contradicted by the vast numbers of immigrant women flooding the ranks of the working class in the Northeast. These white immigrant women were wage earners first and only secondarily housewives. And there were other women, millions of women, who toiled away from their home as the unwilling producers of the slave economy in the South. The reality of women's place in 19th century US society involved white women whose days were spent operating factory machines for wages that were a pittance as surely as involved black women, who labored under the coercion of slavery. The housewife reflected a partial reality, for she was really a symbol of the economic prosperity enjoyed by the emerging middle classes. Although the housewife was rooted in the social conditions of the bourgeoisie and the middle classes, 19th century ideology established the housewife and the mother as universal models of womanhood, since popular propaganda represented the vocation of all women as a function of their roles in the home, 
women compelled to work for wages came to be treated as alien visitors within the masculine world of the public economy. Having stepped outside their natural sphere, women were not to be treated as full-fledged wage workers. The price they paid involved long hours, substandard working conditions, and grossly inadequate wages. Their exploitation was even more intense than the exploitation suffered by their male counterparts. Needless to say, sexism emerged as a source of outrageous super-profits for the capitalists. The structural separation of the public economy of capitalism and the private economy of the home has been continually reinforced by the obstinate primitiveness of household labour. Despite the proliferation of gadgets for the home, domestic work has remained qualitatively unaffected by the technological advances brought on by industrial capitalism. Housework still consumes thousands of hours of the average housewife's year. In 1903, Charlotte Perkins Gilman proposed a definition of domestic labour which reflected the upheavals which had changed the structure and content of housework in the United States. Quote, the phrase domestic work does not apply to a special kind of work, but to a certain grade of work, a state of development through which all kinds pass. All industries were once domestic, that is, were performed at home and in the interests of the family. All industries have since that remote period risen to higher stages, except one or two, which have never left their primal stage. End quote. Footnote 10. Quote, the home, Gilman maintains, has not developed in proportion to our other institutions. The home economy reveals the maintenance of primitive industries in a modern industrial community and the confinement of women to these industries and their limited area of expression. End quote. Footnote 11. Housework, Gilman insists, violates women's humanity. Quote, she is feminine, more than enough, as man is masculine, more than enough. But she is not human as he is human. The house life does not bring out our humanness, for all the distinctive lines of human progress lie outside. End quote. Footnote 12. The truth of Gilman's statement is corroborated by the historical experience of black women in the United States. Throughout this country's history, the majority of black women have worked outside their homes. During slavery, women toiled alongside their men in the cotton and tobacco fields, and when industry moved into the South, they could be seen in tobacco factories, sugar refineries, and even in lumber mills and on crews pounding steel for the railroads. In labor, slave women were the equals of their men. Because they suffered a grueling sexual equality at work, they enjoyed a greater sexual equality at home in the slave quarters than did their white sisters who were housewives. As a direct consequence of their outside work, as free women, no less than as slaves, housework has never been the central focus of black women's lives. They have largely escaped the psychological damage industrial capitalism inflicted on white middle-class housewives, whose alleged virtues were feminine weakness and wifely submissiveness. Black women could hardly strive for weakness, they had to become strong, for their families and their communities needed their strength to survive. Evidence of the accumulated strengths black women have forged through work, work, and more work, can be discovered in the contributions of the many outstanding female leaders who have emerged within the black community. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Ida Wells, 
and Rosa Parks are not exceptional black women as much as they are the epitomes of black womanhood. Black women, however, have paid a heavy price for the strengths they have acquired and the relative independence they have enjoyed. While they have seldom been just housewives, they have always done their housework. They have thus carried the double burden of wage labour and housework, a double burden which always demands that working women possess the persevering powers of Sisyphus. As W.E.B. Dubois observed in 1920, quote, Some few women are born free, and some amid insult and scarlet letters achieve freedom. But our women in black had freedom thrust contemptuously upon them. With that freedom, they are buying an untrammeled independence, and dear as is the price they pay for it, it will in the end be worth every taunt and groan. End quote. Footnote 13. Like their men, black women have worked until they could work no more. Like their men, they have assumed the responsibilities of family providers. The unorthodox feminine qualities of assertiveness and self-reliance, for which black women have been frequently praised but more often rebuked, are reflections of their labor and their struggles outside the home. But like their white sisters called housewives, they have cooked and cleaned and have nurtured and reared untold numbers of children. But unlike the white housewives, who learned to lean on their husbands for economic security, black wives and mothers, usually workers as well, have rarely been offered the time and energy to become experts at domesticity. Like their white working class sisters, who also carry the double burden of working for a living and servicing husbands and children, black women have needed relief from this oppressive predicament for a long, long time. For black women today, and for all their working-class sisters, the notion that the burden of housework and childcare can be shifted from their shoulders to the society contains one of the radical secrets of women's liberation. Childcare should be socialized, meal preparation should be socialized, housework should be industrialized, and all of these services should be readily accessible to working-class people. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week we'll be finishing out this chapter and the book itself. If you have comments, questions, corrections, suggestions, new readings, responses, anything you want, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.